On February 28th at the Ash Center, Professors Kay Schlossman, Sidney Verba, and Henry Brady discuss their new book, The Unheavenly Chorus, Unequal Political Voice and the Broken Promise of American Democracy. This seminar is part of the Democracy Seminar Series, sponsored by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center's news, events, and research, please visit www.ash.harvard.edu. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for the second meeting of the, the Ash Seminar Democracy Series for the spring semester. Um, the, the guests today really no, need no introduction, um, but I'll spend a few minutes doing it anyway. I won't go through the... Um, usual litany of things that they've written because that would really take the full 90 minutes. I'll just tell you a little bit about the biographies of each one um, for I think at least one or two people in the room doesn't, doesn't know. Uh, what you might not know or might, what you might not realize that all three members of uh, uh, the panel today, the, the presenters, are fellows of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and two of them are past presidents of the American Political Science Association. Um, the guest who's traveled furthest is uh, Henry Brady. I spent most of the last two days with Henry uh, and a uh, wonderful experience, a little bit exhausting, so I'm glad I don't have to present. Uh, we were on the, uh, members of the visiting Being with committee. Being is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> we were members of the visiting committee for the uh, MIT Political Science Department, of which we are both uh, products. Uh, Henry, just a year or two before me. He received his PhD in economics and political science from MIT in 1980. Um, for the past three years, Henry has been dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. And from 2009 to 10, he served as president of the APSA. He was also president of the, America, of the uh, Political Methodolo Methodology Society of APSA and director of UC's Survey Research Center from 1998 to 2009. Um, He's written a lot of books. Uh, you can Google them and, and find them for yourself, as have the other, uh, other folks here today. Uh, Kay Schlossman serves as the uh, Joseph Moakley Endowed Professor of Political Science. She received her BA from Wellesley College and an MA and a PhD from University of Chicago. She's winner of the American Political Science Association's 2004 Roman and Littlefield Award for Innovative Teaching in Political Science, and she teaches in American she served as the secretary for the APSA and chair of APSA's organized section and behavior. She's winner of uh, the APSA uh, Frank Goodno Award for Distinguished Service in 2006. She has also written many, many books and articles. Uh, finally, Sid Verba is uh, the Carl H. Portsheimer University Professor Emeritus and Research Professor, currently Research Professor in the Gov Department at Harvard University where he's taught for 35 years. At Harvard, he's served as, uh, as the uh, chair of the Department of Government, the associate dean of the faculty for undergraduate education, associate provost, and chair of the board of directors for the Harvard University Press. Sid received his BA from Harvard and his PhD from Princeton. He's taught at Princeton, Stanford, and UC before joining the Harvard faculty. Uh, though these three highly distinguished scholars, of course, have interests that are particular to the, their themselves, each of them, what brings them here together are their concerns about equality, participation, and the voice of citizens. Those, of course, are the concerns, central concerns of the Ash Center's democracy program. That's why it's great to have them here today. Their first collaboration 
is to explore this topic uh, in their book, Voice and Equality, Civic Volunteerism in America. It's a classic book that uh, many of us in this room teach. Uh, certainly all of us have uh, read and many of us rely upon for our own scholarship. Today, they're here to talk about the successor to that volume, which is uh, their new book, came out just last year, The Unheavenly Chorus, Unequal Political Voice and the Broken Promise of American Democracy. Though uh, The Unheavenly Chorus came out only last year, it's on its way to becoming a classic already. It has won two of the annual Best Book Awards from the American Association of Publishers, including uh, Best Book in the category of Government and Politics and in the Social Sciences category. To me, at any rate, what's most valuable about this book is not what it has to say to professional scholars of American politics, but what it has to say to citizens and leaders in America. Its central message is that there's much to worry about for anyone who cares about the health of American democracy. Just last month, I was giving a presentation not to a professional audience of political scientists, but rather to a group of civil society leaders who had come together for a meeting in New York the group was composed of people who, for a living, uh, many of them who've done this for decades, are engaged in civic engagement and mobilization. They try to get people involved in politics. Labor leaders, immigrant rights organizers, community organizers, people working on the topic of economic justice. I presented uh, some of the material from the Unheavenly Chorus because it is the best and cleanest treatment of this topic, I think. Um, the half-empty part of this story is that even some of the basic patterns of political participation and inequality that um, Sid and Henry and Kay show, um, not to mention the more nuanced aspects, were news to this group. And this is a group of people, Whoa, what they okay. do is mobilize other people. Their business is political participation. In a, among a group of people, sophisticated actors who clearly should have known better, and this fact, to me, shows a very sad disconnect between the world of scholarship on one hand and practice, even among those who are working in this arena of democracy. The glass half full part, however, is that this book by Kay, Henry, and Brady is already doing much to bridge that gap between practice and scholarship on American democracy. So it's my great, great pleasure to welcome Sid, Kay, and Henry. Thank you. We're all three here to uh study to discuss and present our most recent book, The Unheavenly Chorus. Uh, I'm going to speak first to put it in the context of more general theories of equality and participation and in the context of our earlier book. Uh, our earlier book, Voice and Equality, was published almost two decades ago and it follows, this book follows up on that general theme but in a quite different way. Uh, voice inequality was about equal political voice. That is, in a, in a democracy, each citizen is supposed to have an equal voice uh, symbolized by one person, one vote. And we all know that though that seems to be what should be the case, it is certainly not what is the case. Some people have much more political voice than others. Not only does it mean that some people vote and others don't, but some people do lots of other things, and we've been interested in the variety of ways in which citizens take part. Uh, the earlier book focused on individuals. We studied basically the process by which individuals come to be political actors and others do not, resulting uh, in inequality of political activity because some people are active and others are not, and we were interested in why that is the case. 
And basically, without going through the 650 pages of that book, because I've got another 700 pages to talk about in a few minutes, <laughs> uh, the main theme of that book was the individual. Talking to me? No? Yeah, fine. <laughs> no, fine. Uh, the main theme of that book was looking at individuals and seeing what was it that made some people active and others not. And it was quite clear that there were many reasons. But basically, we found that people became active for a variety of reasons involving their own personal circumstances. What made you an activist citizen began in the family. What was going on there began very much in schooling, began with the job you had, with the people you knew on the job, with the variety of organizations you joined into. And out of these very complicated social backgrounds, some people were activists and others were not, made a very important point that the difference in activity across individuals was something embedded in the social structures of the United States, in the kinds of families we have, in the kinds of schools we have, and so forth. Because what they learn in the family, in the school, on the job, who they deal with on the job, all affected the likelihood that they would be politically active. So there's the book with its uh, fancy cover, which we like very much. Uh, and when we finished that book, having done all those pages, uh, we were pretty much exhausted. And I think we exhausted our readers. And so we decided we would go off and do something else. But fairly shortly thereafter, we decided that even though we thought we had said the last word on the subject, there were, as usual in academic uh, pursuits, many more words to be said. That this was a social science problem worth continuing working on. And it was a civic problem worth continuing working on. Because the problem of inequality in political voice was something that I, we thought was a real problem in American democracy. Uh, and so we went off to look for a new book. Another reason we went off to look for a new book is these are very busy people here. I was retired, and, but I don't play golf. So I couldn't figure out what to do next. So I decided I would work on a book with them. So that's where this comes from. So the new book we have is uh, Voice, uh, the, uh, clicking I, I'm clicking too fast. Here we go back. Yes, I can't handle, I can't do, I can't multitask. I was told that that's not a good thing to do anyway. Uh, we, uh, this is the unheavenly chorus. And here is the main theme of the unheavenly chorus. Uh, this is what I could stop right now and you would understand the whole uh, thing that I'm going to talk about. Because what this is, it says in a very striking way, everybody is on an equal playing field. And to some extent, everybody is. That's an exaggeration. But if you think about the right to vote, it's pretty universal in the United States. Free speech is universal in the United States. And in some ways, that makes the playing field equal. But these two guys who are there on the playing field differ very much in terms of their motivation, in terms of the capacity they have, uh, in how hungry they are, and so forth and so on. So we are interested in the extent to which the system of the way in which people are endowed with skills, motivation, uh, the capacity and resources to act make a big difference that creates political inequality. So uh, I have at this point, I've got to use it in case, oops. I got to figure out how to do this. There you go. That's no, no, I'm going. There we go. Uh, 
Here we, and then I press this. I mean, I just want, because I mean, you couldn't see which was bigger. This was the leopard, <laughs> and this was the rabbit. Uh, both of them, you can see, are running equally fast, but with different motivations in mind. The title, uh, The Unheavenly Chorus, comes from a book by E. E. Schatzneider in the 1960s, a classic, in which he talked about inequality in America uh, and uh, political participation. And one of the famous lines in the book is that the pluralist heaven, is that the pluralist heavenly chorus sings with a strong upper class accent. And one of the things we found as we looked at time moving along was that not only was that heavenly chorus singing even in a more soprano fashion, but uh, it was certainly persisting and getting more and more to be the case in inequality. So I want to tell you about some of the themes in the book, illustrate it with a bit of data, and my two colleagues will illustrate certain of the themes much more fully, but we won't cover all 700 pages of the book within this limited amount of time. One of the major themes of the book is the persistence of political inequality. This is a very simple chart in which we have, there we go, we've got to go to the chart. Yeah. This is just a very simple chart, very similar to lots that we use in the book uh, and, and with various variations. It just simply looks across four studies of citizen participation with roughly equivalent questions. Uh, and in the vertical axis, you have a uh, measure of political activity. The higher you are, the more active you are. Down here, you have a measure of socioeconomic status. This is a measure made up of education and income. You could use many other measures. This is a very simplified measure. And we divide it into five quintiles. So you've got the lowest fifth of people in terms of their socioeconomic status and the highest quintile and the others in between. And all of this shows is the persistence. That is, if you go from 1960 to 2008, and we actually have data from 2012, you find almost the same pattern of greater activity among those who are more active, uh, are more educated and more uh, affluent. The point is, it's not necessarily the same individuals are active. It's that the same kind of individuals are active. And that it is based upon, essentially, social class. Now, political activity is not a simple thing to measure. You can measure the vote, because you either get the vote or you don't get the vote, although not everybody votes, of course. But other kinds of political activities, like going to meetings, working for political parties, uh, speaking up about issues, and above all, giving money, is much more flexible. So individuals can differ very much in how they are, how active they are in political life. So this one just shows something that is very important to our analysis, and it runs through the book. And this is just quite, oops. And this is quite simply the same kind of graph. At the bottom, we have a, much, a more detailed dis dis differentiation in terms of socioeconomic status. And here we have the extent to which people engage in three kinds of activity, campaign work, campaign meetings, and campaign donations. And the 
question is, as you go up the socioeconomic scale from people who are at the very lowest level up to the top, you see that all these kinds of activities go up in frequency. And the one that goes up the most is, as you could imagine, uh, money. Money is the most flexible. If you want to be active in campaign work, you've got up to 24 hours a day, not quite 24 hours a day. But if you want to give money, it is a much more uh, flexible amount that can go from very little to, as we know, to a, an awful lot. Uh, this is uh, an important point to make right here, because one of the things that is very central to our uh, work is the importance of social class. We know that you want to, to see how much inactivity there is in political activity, how much inequality there is in political activity. And you have to compare groups. One of the ways you compare them are people on the basis of their social class, that is education, income. But we also know you have to compare people on the basis of gender, of race, of ethnicity, of location, and the like. And we do so. And we find that all of these are important. But one of the most interesting things that happened as we were working on the book is we started out looking always at data on social class. And every time we turned around to some manifestation of inequality, we found that social class was extremely important, often to some extent superseding these other characteristics, not pushing them out of the way because it's still, no matter if you controlled for social class, there were differences between African Americans and white Americans, between men and women, between people of various ages. But nevertheless, in almost every categorization we looked at, within uh, women, within men, among African Americans, among whites, within those groups, socioeconomic class played a dominant role. And in many ways, it kept popping up uh, before us. Isaiah Berlin has written a very famous essay about the fox and the hedgehog. The fox is some, someone who knows a lot of things. The hedgehog is someone who knows one big thing. And we think our book is a combination of a fox of a book with a hedgehog of a center. That is, it's got many themes in it. But every time we look at it, the hedgehog of socioeconomic class comes up. It's a very important distinction that is there all the time. Oops, back again. Here, this gives you another look at the nature of this stratification. This is the same data in a certain way uh, that we had in the earlier uh, uh, slide. And what this is is simply these pie charts. Oops. I've got to buy a new one that doesn't just move every time I turn it. Backwards. I'm going backwards. Yeah. Well, so is our nation sometimes, I think. <laughs> All right, here. There you go. Uh, this is the distribution of uh, the origin of three kinds of inputs into the political system, of votes, of hours given to politics, and of dollars. Now, each of these slices uh, on the pie is one-fifth of the population. If there was equality, each one of those slices would always be 20%. 20% of the votes would come from the lowest socioeconomic status. 20% would come from the highest socioeconomic status. But of course, you get more votes coming from those lower on the socioeconomic scale than those higher on the socioeconomic scale. 
So if you look at votes, you find that uh, the lowest quintile, instead of giving 20%, which it would give if it was equal, gives 14%, the highest gives 26%. A big difference, but not overwhelming. If you look at the number of hours that come from these citizens, the lowest fifth gives 11%, the highest fifth gives uh, 30%. But if you look at the dollars, the lowest fifth gives less than 1%, and the top fifth gives 70%. This is an underestimation, a great understatement of how skewed are the dollars, because our measurements are such, giving sur given a survey, that we don't really get much beyond enough cases above the top fifth to make the distinction. If we looked all the way across uh, the economic circumstances, we would find the overrepresentation, as we all know, of people in the one, top 1% 1 of income and people in the top 01% of income is much more striking than is this particular pattern. Uh, what it says is a very simple thing, that when Bill Gates or Zuckerberg go into the voting booth, they each have the same voting strength as I do. They have one vote. When they go out of the uh, voting booth, they, with their billions, could influence many, many votes. Uh, and that's a big difference. Uh, Zuckerberg and Gates are not good examples for this particular uh, thing I am showing, because as far as one knows, they are not deeply involved in politics, and they give their money to other things. The only reason I mention that, that contrast between me and them is whenever I talk to a audience filled with Harvard students, of which I assume there are some here, I just want to tell them the value of being a student at Harvard in terms <laughs> of their economic circumstances, especially if you're smart enough to leave before you graduate. Uh, so let me just say a few more things about the uh, uh, movement to our new book and what are some of the themes that are in there that weren't in our new book. I'll say them very quickly because my colleagues get very disturbed when I talk longer than I should be talking, as do many people I know, uh, one of whom's in the, in the audience. But I don't, I don't want to discuss personal matters. Uh, one of the things that we found that needed a new book was the changing technical world. That is, when we started writing this uh, the un unheavenly chorus, uh, the internet uh, Oops, see, I never got how did I ever get there? That's for my colleague to write talk about. Uh, I, the, uh, when we started writing this book, we hadn't even heard of the internet. It shows you how long it took us to write it. Uh, but by the time we finished the book, all of a sudden there was the internet. And with our interest in equality, lots of people were saying, well, is the internet going to increase or decrease uh, political inequality? And so we have a chapter on that subject, which I will not talk about with one of my colleagues will tell you about what the internet is doing for inequality. Uh, another thing that we have in this book, which is I think its most distinctive feature, because there's no other book that quite does this, is that our earlier book was about individuals. The units of analysis were individuals. What was it that got them active in politics? What were the consequences of their getting active in politics? This book now has almost half of its content a focus on organized interests in Washington. We have a very large sample of organizations that lobby in Congress, in other places, in, in the government. Uh, and we look at them as also the producers of a voice 
about politics. And I won't tell you whether they create more or less inequality. I'll let you guess, but then one of my colleagues will give you data that will really move you very much. Last point, uh, and this is related to what uh, uh, Archon was just talking about, uh, talking to people who are really active in trying to mobilize people to politics. Uh, this we really won't get into, uh, but we have a last chapter of the book. And the book sort of shows how embedded is inequality in the nature of American politics. When you have a book that's long and says things that aren't really very enlightening or uplifting uh, for the reader, at least many of the readers we think of our book, uh, you have to have a last chapter which says, so we're going to do something about it. Let's go do it. Uh, and so we have a chapter which uses as its title a variation on Lenin's favorite uh, famous line. The chapter is called, what, what, if anything, is to be done? Uh, and the basic message of that chapter is, we wish we knew, and if we did, we'd tell you. But in fact, it turns out that, if you want to put it this way, there are a number of small things that can be done that would help a little bit. There are a number of big things that could be done that'll never be done. And so we do not end with a very uplifting message. And so I didn't want to fool you and tell you, go out and, go out and enjoy yourselves. What you should do is go out and buy the book, and then you'll see what the last message is. Thank you. So I need this. You need that. So this is a, a, a tag team match. Uh, and uh, I just want to go back here, actually, for a minute, and note that Sid was uh, a principal investigator on every one of the studies done here. This starts in 1960 with the civic culture. It goes through participation in political equality in 67. It goes through the citizen participation study in 1990. And then it goes through the Pew study that we did uh, with the Pew uh, Internet Project in 2008. And we've done another study in 2012, so we've actually updated the study. So that's more than 50 years of doing work in this area. And uh, Sid was a pioneer when he started doing this kind of work. Surveys were a novelty, especially doing surveys of political participation. He led the way. Uh, Kay and I have followed along. We've been incredibly lucky to be able to work with Sid, to learn from him, and continue what I think is an extraordinarily important tradition in studying these kinds of matters. So uh, uh, we've been very lucky. So let me now go see if I can master this. OK, so I actually don't want to go there quite yet. Let me just ask you a question. Uh, maybe inequality in activity across SES categories, across different social classes, is just the way the world is. Upper classes just participate more in everything, and lower classes participate less. So in a way, when we start complaining about this, you might say, hey, that's the way the world is. Stop complaining. And so what we said to ourselves is, let's look at this a little bit and figure out another activity, which is an important human activity and figure out whether, in fact, it's as stratified as political participation. So what we did is we went and found some measures of political participation. And this is a, a four-point measure. It's got four different activities, whether you go to a meeting working in a campaign, whether you donate money, or you try to influence somebody's vote. So that's four activities. And you can be from zero to four. And then we looked at religious participation. How much do you go to church? And the American National Election Studies asks these questions from 1952 every presidential election year onwards. So we can look at these over time and see how stratified they are. 
And specifically what I'm going to show you in a minute is a graph in which we take the level of participation of the top quintile. So on the uh, zero to four campaign act, uh, that's about two, two acts, something like that. And then we look at the level of activity of the lowest quintile. And so that's maybe half an act. And so that ratio is about four. So, and that's what Sid just showed you. That we've got a big ratio between the level of activity of the top quintile and the bottom SES quintile. So not surprisingly, the graph I'm about to show you over time, because it goes from 52 onwards, will show you that that number uh, uh, of the ratio of the top to the bottom quintile for political participation in campaign kinds of activities uh, is high. Think to yourself, ask yourself, what does that look like with respect to religious participation? That is to say, what's the average level of religious attendance in the top quintile versus the bottom quintile? And by the way, this is not just a function of the fact that the more highly educated are less religious. There's a little bit of that, but actually, that's not really the explanation for what you're about to see. So going to that, now I can reveal it. So here's, I assume that's the pointer, yeah. So here's campaign activity, and it's gone up and down depending upon the presidential election. It's gone down a bit recently, by the way, which is interesting, and we could talk about why that's so. But notice where religious attendance is, the ratio of the top quintiles, religious attendance to the bottom quintiles. It's about, gosh, it's highly stratified, 1.1 to 1. Yeah, it's true, the top quintile goes to, goes to religious services just a little bit more, but not by very much at all. So it's not a law of nature. It's not absolutely required that every human activity have high level of participation by those in the upper quintile and a low level in the bottom quintile. Religion proves that's just not so. So that's worth knowing. Here's the next question. Well, okay, yeah, there's inequality in political participation, but maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the folks in the top quintile have about the same problems and needs as those in the bottom quintile. So let's look at that a little bit. So what we do here is we have some data from uh, the 2008 American National Election Study, the gold standard for studying elections, and we there's a bunch of questions on there. And here we're gonna look at different levels of activity. Uh, inactives, this D, by the way, should be a superscript, and I'm not sure if that was changed for the final book. We should look that up. Because um, this may have been the earlier proofs that we did this from, but it's actually supposed to be a footnote. Um, and so we ask, uh, do you believe in universal health care? And by the way, we don't mean single payer here. We mean, do you believe the federal government should provide all necessary health care? So in effect, we're asking whether you believe in Medicare plus Medicaid plus something like Obamacare, okay? Which is what it, Obamacare is trying to do. Um, and what you find here is inactives favor it about two and a half to to uh, their favorability rating is about two and a half times bigger than their opposition rating. Go down to campaign contributors. I hate to keep picking on these poor people. Um, but here, a plurality of them oppose universal health care. Now, maybe this isn't surprising because if you look at these figures over here, percentage with no health insurance, about a quarter of the inactives do not have health insurance, and obviously they might favor universal health care. And only 7% of campaign contributors don't have health insurance. So in fact, they have different needs, the two groups. Well, let's go a little further. Maybe it's just with respect to healthcare. Uh, the 2008 study had some really neat questions where they had the interviewer code 16 different items about the condition of the house and the neighborhood that the, because this is an in-person survey. Uh, 
the condition of the house in the neighborhood. So it was things like, are there broken windows? Are there torn screen in the front door? Is there graffiti in the neighborhood? Are there abandoned cars? You get the picture. And so this is whether there's one or more of those kinds of problems in the neighborhood. And for inactives, more than a quarter had problems along these lines and lived in places or neighborhoods or homes that had torn roofs, uh, bad screens, graffiti, abandoned cars, those kinds of places, and only 12% of campaign contributors. A big, big difference. So it's not the case that people who are active uh, are, have the same concerns as people who are inactive. In fact, inactives have some very serious concerns about health care, housing, neighborhood problems, and lots of other things we document in the book. And this may not be a surprise, but it's worth documenting and getting at it. Well, okay, so maybe it's not the case that they have the same problems, but maybe when there's a government program that's directed at people who are low income, maybe people say to themselves, gosh, that program's about my needs, and therefore I'm going to become politically active with respect to that program. You would think if there's one place where lower income people might get active, it would be with respect to programs like AFTC, now replaced by TANF, uh, and or in Medicaid, where, which is another low-income program, but for healthcare. And you'd expect there you'd find people who maybe are pretty active with respect to those programs because it really matters for their welfare. And so to make a comparison here, what we do is we compare these programs, a means-tested program like AFTC. This is 1990 data because, uh, unfortunately, this has not been updated by other people. One of the things we're actually proud of is the citizen participation study asked a lot of questions we wish more people would ask uh, repeatedly because we, we really tried hard. And of all the surveys I've ever developed, and I think this is maybe even true for Sid, except maybe for the civic culture, of all the surveys ever developed, this one had more new content. Uh, it, usually when you start a survey, you, you borrow freely from lots of other people. In this case, we created a whole lot of new questions. And these are some of the new questions we created for that survey. Uh, and what we find is take the means tested an income kind of benefit, AFDC, uh, compare it with Social Security, and you find out that the folks who get AFDC, the lower income people who, for whom AFDC is an important program, they, we ask them, well, did you vote based upon this program? So we actually ask very explicit questions. It's not whether you voted or not, it's did you vote with respect to this program? Did you make a campaign contribution with respect to this program? Did you contact a public official? And there you would think, my gosh, they must have contacted a public official along the way. Uh, or did you, are you a member of an organization? Well, what you notice here is the AFDC numbers are much smaller than the Social Security numbers. And maybe you're not surprised, organization member, we know who those folks are, probably largely AARP. Uh, and it's actually surprising there's even 2% here because welfare rights organizations, there used to be a very active one in the 60s and 70s. It's basically not there anymore. It's actually got a very uh, ghostly sort of presence in the Washington directory that Kay will talk about in a few moments. Uh, but it doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, and the same result occurs with respect to Medicaid versus Medicare. That in fact, the low-income program, those folks are much less likely to be active with respect to that program than the folks who get Medicare uh, are with respect to that program. 
and this might, by the way, help you understand what's going on in American politics right now as people are talking about sequestration and whether or not we need to do things like reducing benefits in Medicare or Social Security in order to fund other kinds of programs. Okay, the next thing is you might say, actually I'm gonna go back so that I don't give it away yet. Um, okay. So, but maybe there is a way out of this. Maybe what happens is, think of the civil rights movement. Didn't that mobilize a bunch of lower income, lower SES people? Wasn't that in some sense a poor people's movement? Well, the answer is, is probably yes. But those are episodic kinds of things. And it's interesting to ask, in an everyday basis, does recruitment, as you get in the mobilization during the civil rights movement, does that mobilize lower income people more than upper income people? Wouldn't it be great if recruitment did that? So what we did is we looked at recruitment. Uh, and here, this shows you first, the dashed line is what we've shown you many times already. This is SES quintiles. This says people are more active, higher SES quintile. They're more uh, active, they're there are higher levels of activity for those people with higher SES. But here's what's also true. Guess where people go, and think about this for a moment. Suppose you were trying to recruit somebody to be active in a campaign or to give money. Where would you go? You'd probably do what people do. When they go and ask people to be active, they go to higher quintiles. I mean, think about it for a minute, it makes sense. If you're asking, for example, for a political contribution, you're not gonna ask the poor person and ask the rich person. So that's in terms of asking. We can even then go and look at these activities and ask which ones were recruited. So we have people who are active. Some of them were recruited, they were asked, and others just spontaneously were involved. And what we actually find is the people who acted spontaneously, and we can argue about whether this is exactly true, but it looks like maybe that's actually a little less stratified than the people who are active from recruitment. It's certainly not the case that recruitment leads to a change in the amount of SES uh, slope here, and it doesn't lead to the fact that more poor people are recruited into politics. To the contrary, recruitment leads to more rich people being recruited into politics. Okay, so that doesn't work. Um, so I've shown you that activity does not have to be stratified. It matters that it's stratified because people at lower SES have more problems and difficult problems. And finally, mobilization doesn't solve the problem. Now, Kay is going to consider maybe the internet. I live in California near Silicon Valley. We know the internet's changing everything and making everybody equal. So Kay's gonna tell us whether that's true or not. Then she's gonna tell us whether or not organized interests in Washington are also making up the difference and making sure that inequality is not a problem in America. The news is not going to be good. <laughs> Thank you. Do you want to make sure I'm on? Okay. Um, before I start, I just want to reassure everybody that D that was supposed to be a superscript, in the book, it's a superscript. Those were the page proofs, and that's what I had a digital version of. So you can all rest assured. Oh my God. <laughs> So the second mechanism for possibly disrupting these patterns that we found over and over again would possibly be the democratizing polit of political voice via the internet. And early assessments of the internet stress the possibility that 
as access to the hardware became more widespread, the internet would provide a vehicle for the equalization of political voice. But instead, wait a minute, you forgot that one. No, no, you forgot to talk about this. We can talk oh, about it later. Let's skip it. Yeah, let's skip it. Whoops. <laughs> this is all just telling you that, um, the, very quickly, that as we've seen before, political contributions come from the most affluent and best educated fifth of the population. But it's interesting that people who gave on their own, a smaller share came rather than people who got a request, say from someone they know at church or someone they know in an organization or someone at work. And you can see how much more highly stratified uh, recruited activity is. That was Henry's theme. Now we get to the extent to which the internet is or is not democratizing political activity. And here we're using data from 2008 that we collected in conjunction with the Pew the Pew Internet and American Life Project. We did a survey together with them, and we did something that, uh, that no one had done, which was simply to ask about participation offline, the way we've been doing it in America for a couple of centuries, and participation online, because there are many things you can do online just the same way you do them offline. You can give money, um, can't work for a party <laughs> or a candidate, um, but you can send a communication to a public official and so on. And so what we see here is that um, here's the same old upward sloping uh, line that we've been seeing over and over again showing you that as you go up the SES hierarchy, you get higher levels of participation. And here we see the same thing uh, for doing any participatory act offline. The bottom line shows the same kind of curve, perhaps even more sharp, for doing anything online, such as sending an email to a public official or making your campaign contribution online. And one of the questions we brought to this was, is it about the hardware? Remember, this is 2008. And even in the ensuing five years, there's been substantial increases in access to the hardware. So we, what we looked at in this second line from the bottom is the people who use the web, who told us they get email occasionally or that they surf the web occasionally uh, and actually fairly often. We looked at those people and we said, do we see the same stratification of activity that we saw um, for all the other things we've been talking about all day. And it turns out it's not just about the hardware. It's not just about the fact that people with limited ed education and income are less likely to have computers at home, less likely to have the internet at home, and so on. In fact, even among those who do, there's a sharp stratification in uh, political activity on the internet. We also investigated the possibility that social networking sites like Facebook might have the potential to overcome the SES bias in activity. In the 2008 data, there was some suggestion that social networking sites like Facebook might have the potential to overcome what we've been seeing over and over again, this stratification. 
So we looked again in 2012 at the share who do one of the following on a social networking site or Twitter. Started or join a group, um, a political group or a group supporting a political cause, follow any elected officials or candidates for office, or post links to political stories and articles for others to read. And what we found was same old, same old. Uh, the red line is the, the data for, for political activity on the web for 2012. Looks just like we found for 2008. But in addition, we find that there's a social stratification for social media activity. Um, it's more muted than it is for actually doing something. And we're not sure whether that's because the measures of, uh, that the measures for uh, social networking sites in involve political uh, involvement uh, rather than actually doing things, um, or whether it's a function of the fact that the young are so much more disproportionately likely to be using social networking sites. And it's very clear that um, socioeconomic status, that our measures of SES for those who are under 30 are much less accurate than uh, for, for adults because often people under 30 respond and tell us their family income, which includes their parents, rather than just their own income. So we're not quite sure whether, oops, I did a Sydney. <laughs> oops, wait a minute, I'm going backwards. Here we go. Sorry about this. It's great they get to see it all again. That's right. <laughs> Life passes before you. Um, so <laughs> we're not sure whether there's something real going on here, but the, the internet is an environment that changes so quickly that, um, that uh, we will want to stay tuned. As Henry indicated, a very important part of this book is that we linked evidence about political voice, not just to individual level activity, which is what we had been studying for a long time and which is what political scientists usually study, but we also looked at political voice through organized interests. And note that I use the term organized interests rather than something like interest groups, because it turns out that the overwhelming number of organizations that are active in Washington politics are not uh, voluntary associations of individuals. Only roughly one in eight is a voluntary uh, association of individuals. Most of them are other kinds of entities, especially what we follow political scientists named Robert Salisbury calling them institutions. And what he called institutions were things like corporations. Corporations are the modal kind of organization that's active in Washington. But also, you should pardon the expression, universities, hospitals, museums, and the like, <laughs> as well as associations of such institutions, the modal kind of which is a trade association, an organization that brings together corporations in um, a given field of, a given sector of the economy. So when we started this book, we said this book is going to be different from the books we usually write. We're not going to gather any new data. And this is, to, to paraphrase Calvin Trillin, a little bit like telling the customs official not to be interested in that little plastic bag that's full of white powder. <laughs> and as part of our not gathering data, we put together 
um, a database that now includes more than 40,000 organizations active in Washington and a great deal of information about their histories, about what they do in politics. And part of that uh, enterprise was to categorize those organizations in no fewer than 96 categories showing what kinds of interests they are representing so that we really could make some very fine distinctions in figuring out about whose voice is heard in Washington politics. Sometimes polit uh, uh, politicians and journalists and political scientists talk about citizens groups which conflate a variety of kinds of groups ranging from environmental groups to gay rights groups, anti-smoking groups, organizations of African Americans, women, or the elderly. And we were able to differentiate finally. We can find all of those separate kinds of organizations. And we thank the undergraduates from Boston College and Harvard who helped us to do it. The traditional understanding in political science is that two kinds of organizations are underrepresented in American politics. The first are public interest groups, which may in fact be liberal or conservative. And these are public interest groups that advocate on behalf of public goods, like safe streets or safe consumer products, environmental preservation or low energy costs, human rights or national security. And the second are organizations representing the less advantaged. As shown in this table, the bulk of organized interest representation is centered around the economic interests uh, around economic interests and concerns. And in this domain, organizations represent bus representing business swamp other kinds of organizations. In fact, they are 53% of all organizations that were represented in Washington and 74% of those that are focused on economic concerns. So the interests of business are well uh, represented. In contrast, representing the la less affluent are labor unions and a handful of organizations that represent the poor. Most of them, by the way, are social service organizations like the Red Cross and Goodwill Industries and not organizations that advocate directly on behalf of the poor and especially they are not um, organizations of poor people advocating on their own behalf. And so one of the, the epigraphs that you read earlier on was, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> And of the nearly 12,000 organizations that were act active in Washington politics in 2001, there, are no there were no organizations at all representing children in Head Start programs, Walmart associates, those awaiting trial on felony charges, women at home, recipients of means-tested benefits like SNAP or EITC or TANF acting on their own behalf, or if they're not union members, those whose jobs involve unskilled work. What's more, not all organizations are created equal. It's not just having an organization, but how much it's able to do. Organized interests get involved in Washington politics in a whole variety of ways, and we measured a bunch of them. And let me show you a set of pie charts that show that show the distribution 
of some rather aggregated categories of activity. And just to summarize very quickly, so we'll have plenty of time for questions, let me show you that, um, that business groups are a majority of all organizations. They're also a majority, they hire a majority of the lobbyists who work in-house in organizations with offices in Washington. They hire uh, nearly two-thirds of the lobbyists that you hire from public, uh, uh, public relations and law firms. That's more expensive to do, and that's why business is likely to be able to do that. They um, spend nearly three-quarters of the dollars that are spent on lobbying. When it comes to congressional testimony, they are much less well represented, and that represents the fact that congressional testimony is not done at the behest of the testifier. It's done at the behest of the congressional staffers who are putting together the hearing. And so there's a greater cross-section of voices that might be heard in a, in a congressional hearing. They're not as active in um, submitting amicus briefs, but they spend a plurality of the PAC dollars. And as we know, PACs, PAC dollars are becoming a less and less important part of campaign finance. We talked about that a little earlier. So let me just conclude by saying that as we were winding down, a friend sent us a link to an article in the satirical newspaper, The Onion. And that put a spin on our, on our findings by announcing that the American people had hired a heavy-hitting Washington lobbyist from Patton Boggs to help represent their, their concerns before Congress. And now I'm going to quote from The Onion. Known among Beltway insiders for his ability to sway public policy on behalf of massive corporations such as Johnson & Johnson, Monsanto, AT&T, Jack Weldon, 53, is expected to use his vast network of political communications to give his new client, the American people, a voice in the legislative process. Weldon is reportedly charging the American people $795 an hour. <laughs> Quote, unlike R.J. Reynolds, Pfizer, or Bank of America, the U.S. populace lacks access to public officials required to further its legislative goals. A, a statement from the nation read, in part, Jack Weldon gives us that access. His daily presence in Capitol will ensure that the American people finally get a seat at the table. The statement continued, and it will allow him to advance our message that everyone, including Americans, deserves to be represented in Washington. The 300 million member group of Americans said that it will rely on Weldon's considerable clout to ensure its concerns are taken into account when Congress addresses issues such as education, immigration, national security, health care, transportation, the economy, affordable college tuition, infrastructure, jobs, equal rights, taxes, social security, the environment, housing, the national debt, agriculture, energy, alternative energy, nutrition, imports, exports, foreign relations, the arts, and crime. In the absence of Jack Weldon, what, if anything, could be done? And a Kennedy School audience focuses on that. And in fact, as Sid mentioned earlier, we did include as the penultimate cha chapter a chapter where we looked at um, 
at the very question of what, if anything, could be done. And I want to mention that Shauna Seamus, who's sitting in the front row, was a co-author of that chapter. We'd like to be upbeat, but it seems that, the, that any of the changes that are even remotely politically feasible wouldn't make much difference to the things we've talked about. And the ones that might really make a difference are unlikely to materialize for cons both constitutional and political reasons. In an age in which the courts have blown the lid off campaign finance regulation and the state legislatures are passing voter ID laws around the country, it's easy to be despairing about what can be done to level the playing field of American democracy. As we played around with subtitles to go with the unheavenly chorus, we began with unequal voice and the promise of American democracy. But we were at a workshop where the book was being reviewed in manuscript, and Archon suggested that we substitute unequal voice and the broken promise of American <laughs> democracy. Should there be a sequel, and if our spouses have anything to say about it, there will be no sequel. We hope we don't have to entitle it Unequal Voice and the Emergence of American Plutocracy. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.